I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In light of the recent sentencing of President Trump's former associate, Roger Stone, this episode of We the People will explore the Department of Justice, the presidency, and the rule of law. How independent, if at all, should the Department of Justice be from the president? And what does the rule of law require? Joining us to discuss these crucially important questions are two of America's leading experts on the Department of Justice, the rule of law, and the Constitution. And it is so wonderful to convene both of them. John Yu is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at Berkeley Law and the director of the Korea Law Center, the California Constitution Center, and the law school's program in public law and public policy. He served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice, and his forthcoming book, coming out over the summer, is Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. John, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Oh, Jeff, thanks a lot. It's great to be back. And Kimberly Whaley is an author, lawyer, media commentator, and professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She was an associate independent counsel in the Whitewater investigation under Kenneth Starr and an assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. She is a CBS legal expert, and her new book, also coming out over the summer, is What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. Kim, it's great to have you back with us. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Jeff. Let's jump right in by discussing the open letter that more than a thousand former prosecutors and Justice Department officials signed. It was addressed to William Barr, the Attorney General, and it criticized him for flouting what the authors call the longstanding principle that the White House should not intervene in specific criminal cases. The letter said that the Justice Department manual states the rule of law depends on the even-handed administration of justice, that the department's legal decisions must be impartial and insulated from political influence, and that the department's prosecutorial powers in particular must be exercised free from partisan considerations. Kim, why don't you start us off and tell us whether you agree with the former prosecutors and what norms or codified rules does the Justice Department and the rule of law require in terms of the independence of prosecutorial decisions from partisan considerations? Well, I agree with the, the prosecutors that this is troubling. Uh, the president does have a power under Article 2 of the Constitution to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Um, the Justice Department is within the president's chain of command. Uh, the Judiciary Act of 1789 uh, created um, the uh, independent U.S. attorneys, and then that was all put within the umbrella of the Justice Department in 1870. That being said, um, particularly after Watergate, there's a norm of sort of independence between the Justice Department and the president. The idea being uh, that not only for fairness for individual defendants, um, but also for the legitimacy of the department itself to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest, the president has stayed, at least in the public eye, out of decisions relating to individual prosecutions. And here, I think there are a couple of problems. One is that the line prosecutors had made a recommendation 
applying the federal sentencing guidelines. The president tweeted um, that it was a horrible and unfair situation, something like that. And then lo and behold, there was an intervention by the upper echelons of the Justice Department through Attorney General Barr to change that. Um, And that's quite unusual, particularly because the recommendation had already been filed with the judge. And uh, it suggests that the president's uh, unhappiness with it was what made the the attorney general make the change, even if that change was justified potentially under the sentencing guidelines. Um, the other part that's problematic with it is, of course, that Roger Stone's prosecution and trial um, arose from the Mueller investigation. And as people will recall, that investigation was initiated by former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein um, when Jeff Sessions recused himself. And the idea behind a special prosecutor, Mr. Mueller, and Ken Starr before him under a a different statutory regime, I worked on that, is that uh, having the prosecutors in charge of an investigation involving potential wrongdoing by the president is is a problem. It's a conflict of interest. And so we're going to take this, in theory, out of the direct chain of command um, from the president. And although Mueller technically was, but the idea is to have an independent uh, prosecutor. And so, of course, to have the president interfere with the sentencing of a defendant that initially came forth or that whole prosecution came forth through the special counsel, Mr. Mueller, um, is itself, I think, undermining this notion of independent uh, prosecutorial discretion in an, in a situation involving the president's uh, potential wrongdoing. John, what is your view of the letter by the former prosecutors claiming that the president's intervention, formal or otherwise, violates Department of Justice regulations about the impartiality of prosecutorial powers? And more broadly, uh, in responding to the president's recent claim that I'm actually, I guess, the chief law enforcement officer of the country, you have written, while the president is in charge constitutionally as a matter of good policy, presidents have kept law enforcement at arm's length. I I think the letter goes too far. Uh, It brushes aside too quickly the basic constitutional principle, which you and Kim have both mentioned. The Constitution gives the president alone the responsibility and duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. As the Supreme Court itself has said several times, uh, subordinate executive officers like the attorney general and prosecutors all are there to assist the president in carrying out that constitutional duty. Uh, so I think that is the number one constitution. The president is the chief law enforcement officer. Uh, This norm of independence is something that has come up most strongly since Watergate, but is not in the Constitution. It's actually not even in a statute. It is in uh, Justice Department manuals. Um, It is the view of a lot of career prosecutors who, of course, want to give to receive independence in their prosecutorial judgments. But we should keep in mind that from the very beginning, presidents like Washington, presidents like Jefferson, of course, presidents like Lincoln have always – directed and been involved with prosecutions. Now, the line prosecutors might thought that was political interference too, but I don't think there's any doubt that that is constitutionally appropriate. The question is, what's good sense? I don't think you could say President Trump is acting illegally, but he might be, and this is 
you know, this is not the first context where President Trump is trying to change the norms. He's clearly trying to place more political control over the bureaucracy, whether it's foreign policy or whether it's law enforcement. He's entitled uh, to do that. Um, I will note, it seems to me, that he hasn't gone as far as he could have. Uh, The independent counsel, I'm sorry, the special counsel investigation, Robert Mueller is a good example. Trump criticized it. He could have fired Mueller. He could have ordered the probe stopped. He didn't. His actions with Stone are similarly strange, it seems to me. He could have ordered the prosecutors to drop it. He could have actually said, ask for a lower sentence. He could still pardon Stone. But he didn't do any of those things. It's strange, like Trump sits there and criticizes the actions of his own government like he's some kind of observer or outsider. The problem is it changes this norm of sort of nonpartisan law enforcement. But again, that is not a constitutional principle. It is just a norm of what we think is good government. And Trump is clearly trying to change that. There's a lot of things people who criticize him can do. Ultimately, the judge and juries of the courts can refuse to listen to someone like Trump. And as happened here in the Stone case, uh, Judge Jackson sentenced uh, Stone to the range that the attorney general bar rather than the line prosecutors wanted. She wasn't bound to. She didn't have to. But she thought that's what made the most sense. And I think that's that we should calm down, I think, from calls for president for the president to stop tweeting or for attorney general Barr to open to resign i think that really goes too far and the better thing to do is to remind people the benefits to the president and the executive branch when you don't have partisan law enforcement when you have a sort of arm's length as a matter of policy between the white house and uh, this the the main justice down on pennsylvania constitution avenue because that will help the executive branch win its cases in court I hear you both saying that the norm of nonpartisan law enforcement it was especially uh, strong after Watergate, uh, although, John, you just said it's not rooted in the Constitution. And I want to ask both of you how sticky these post-Watergate norms and regulations are in a piece in Lawfare about uh, independence and accountability of the president. Uh, Jack Goldsmith lists a few of them. They include the restrictions that every administration from Carter to Trump has placed on communication between the Justice Department and the White House about law enforcement. Another is the special counsel regulations. Another is the norm of uh, DOJ and FBI officials to be nonpartisan. And then there's the inspector general's position at the Justice Department. And the inspector general has been quite critical of, of both administrations. Kim, I guess I want to ask, to what degree do you feel that these post-Watergate norms, regulations, and institutions are under threat? And do you agree with John or not that the president's tweets don't really ultimately constitute a threat to them? Well, I mean, I think we're really in a moment where whatever the reforms are, people are seriously concerned, myself included, um, with the vitality of an accountable government, particularly in the executive branch going forward, notwithstanding these reforms. And I think the difference is, of course, the president does have a lot of power under Article 2, but he doesn't have unlimited power. I mean, it's not necessarily the word separation of powers aren't expressed in the Constitution, but the structure itself and the history 
um, both of the Constitution and the document before it, the Articles of Confederation, which didn't even have a president, is, is clear that the framers didn't want concentrated power in any one branch. So the, the argument that the president has unlimited power except for maybe um, sort of voluntary compliance with norms is a slippery slope that leads to a, a kind of government that we clearly do not have, that is, we have a limited government. And I think the concern with how, how President Trump has utilized um, his cabinet, has utilized his, this current attorney general, um, has utilized the pardon power, has to do with making decisions about his own political well-being, his own personal interests, or at least the perception is that way, rather than government by we the people. And I think there can be sort of a meta-argument that the president is a sort of fiduciary um, to the populace, to the electorate, and it is not within his prerogative to utilize the massive powers of, of his office, including being at the apex of the entire federal criminal justice system, um, the military, et cetera, to, to entrench um, and potentially ultimately abuse the power of that office. The framers understood that that, that is human nature. Um, the Watergate reforms, you know, I think there could be in the future another discussion if we were to have a, a Congress that was able to really pass um, meaningful sort of uh, substantive legislation in this area as to whether something akin to the Independent Counsel Act that, that I mentioned earlier um, that was a, a post-Watergate reform and gave rise to the, the, the Independent Counsel under Bill Clinton, whether something that's more enshrined in law is necessary going forward. Uh, we saw this with Watergate, that Independent Counsel Act lapsed because the the, I think the the overall sense was that it gave too much power, unlimited power, um, limited unlimited financial authority to, in that instance, Ken Starr, to that sort of third, fourth branch of government. But of course, the Supreme Court in Morrison versus Olson uphold that, held that as a constitutional, notwithstanding that there were limits on the president's unfettered ability to to manage that investigation. So I think that case itself. Uh, undermines the idea that there can be no legal or constitutional, there are no legal or constitutional limits on the presidency. But I, I do think uh, we're in a moment where integrity is lacking in the highest echelons of government. And sometimes um, the policymakers have to come in and Im impose limits that are enforceable to ensure that people's worst instincts don't take over and that they do exercise their power in a manner that's best for the populace and not best for themselves. Uh, John, help us put this in historical context. The description of your new book, uh, which is on Amazon, says that far from considering Trump an inherent threat to our nation's founding principles, you convincingly argues that Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton would have seen Trump as returning to their vision of presidential power even in his most controversial. I, I want to focus on the tweets, and obviously there were no tweets at the time of Washington, but are there historical examples of presidents criticizing either prosecutorial decisions or individual judges in the way that Trump has, and understanding that you don't think that he's violating laws? Is there a point at which uh, the president might violate norms in ways that the founders might have considered troubling? Well, in some ways, uh, what we saw at the founding 
uh, were greater attacks on judges and the independence of the judiciary than what we're seeing now. So I'd say Trump. I wish Trump wasn't tweeting attacks on judges, particularly their ethnicities, or attacking uh, particular prosecutors. But again, he hasn't ordered or commanded anything legally to be done with them. And this is not a case of sort of unlimited centralized. A power in the government. Instead, the president is executing his power to see that the laws are faithfully carried out, uh, which can be checked by the other branches if they choose to. So uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, for example, may be our greatest president. He thought Dred Scott was wrong. He uh, based his candidacy for the Illinois Senate and then the presidency on Dred Scott being wrong. And when he was attacked by Stephen Douglas for being uh, chaotic, for challenging the rule of law, for refusing to follow tradition and precedent. Lincoln said, look, the Supreme Court are one of the three branches of government, but we are not handing over management of the government to the courts. And he said, I will carry out the judgment in the Dred Scott case itself. I will, if I have to, hand Dred Scott himself over, but I will not follow that decision myself in any other case. Uh, that's quite a challenge. Or you could go with Thomas Jefferson, who launched a lot of attacks on John Marshall and got people to attack Marshall and his decisions in the press under pseudonyms. Uh, but the more important principle here, other than the attacks, is I think the direct management of law enforcement by presidents. So President Washington, during the Whiskey Rebellion, directly managed how the U.S. – what we would today call the U.S. attorney in Pennsylvania – handled the prosecution of the rebels. In fact, he ordered the prosecutions dropped. Or take Thomas Jefferson, comes into office. He thinks that Alien and Sedition Acts are unconstitutional, even though the Adams administration, the Congress under the Adams administration, and the courts under the Adams administration all upheld the law as constitutional. Jefferson immediately ordered all prosecutions dropped under the case, and he tried to release those who had been convicted from prison because he thought that law was unconstitutional. And, and he thought as chief law enforcement officer, he had the right to enforce his own constitutional vision. So that's kind of the argument I'm making in my book is actually we live in a, in a regime now where we do accept some rule of law norms, where, where we do accept decisions of the Supreme Court and judges, I think to a much greater extent than the original design and the way our early and maybe some of our greatest presidents first acted. Uh, Kim, John just gave a bunch of examples. Uh, Lincoln and Dred Scott, Jefferson, uh, who famously uh, said, the judiciary of the United States is the subtle core of sappers and miners constantly working underground to undermine the foundations of our confederated fabric. And then he talks about Washington pardoning the whiskey rebels, um, as well as Jefferson refusing to enforce the sedition laws. So what do you believe the differences with President Trump uh, attacking individual judges by name? And uh, I'll just put on the table that as we speak today, the president has called on Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor to recuse themselves from all from anything having to do with Trump or Trump-related cases because of Justice Sotomayor's recent uh, dissenting opinion uh, last week. Yeah, well, I think the examples that were just raised are not of the same ilk that we're talking about, for example, with the Roger Stone um, interference. I mean, Mr. Stone was convicted on seven counts relating to uh, his communications with 
WikiLeaks in connection with the 2016 presidential campaign. Um, that is WikiLeaks' release of emails relating, uh, stolen essentially from Hillary Clinton's um, campaign headquarters. So this this all helped Mr. Trump's election. He has a personal interest. Um, and the perception is, whether accurate or not, that this interference is about um, doing favors for political allies of the man who's currently in office. Uh, and if we are sort of in an environment or moving towards an environment where the massive power of the criminal justice system is used to punish people that that dissent from Mr. Trump's personal agenda or uh, anything relating to his point of view um, or reward people for their political allegiance to the man that is Mr. Trump. That's a very different circumstance than uh, a president making a determination as a matter of broader constitutional policy that a particular policy is improper as a, for you know massive numbers of people. I mean, that's how the legislator makes laws. A legislature makes a determination as a matter of policy, prospectively what's best. And of course, you know, presidents have pardoned, well, I know we might get to this, pardoned individuals on a range of, um, you know, some some controversially, some not. But the idea would be, optimally, that it's done as a matter of mercy, compassion, reconciliation, something that's done uh, in the interests of the broader populace. Any individual, uh, maybe, decision by Trump or tweet by Trump, I mean, some of them are, I think, are indefensible, uh, but there could be excuses made, but the sort of... Um, you know, when they pile up and the, all of these actions taken together, it's quite troubling. And, and it's troubling in part because the other traditional, I mean, the checks and balances that we would expect to apply to a president uh, under this particular president haven't been very effective. We've seen, you know, impeachment. Of course, he was impeached, but he was not removed. And that's a different topic. I mean, that might be structurally problematic. Um, but we have the internal Department of Justice policy that started under under um, Richard Nixon, that uh, presidents cannot be prosecuted criminally or indicted while in office. That's not a it's not in the Constitution. It's not a Supreme Court decision. It's not a legislative decision. Um, but it effectively takes the judicial branch out of oversight for criminal conduct by a president within uh, while they're sitting in office. And then you think of okay, well, the Congress is then there to oversee the president. There are various ways Congress can do that. Uh, appropriations, but of course. You can make the argument that clause was ignored with respect to withholding of the Ukraine military aid. Um, also violated the Apoundment Act, in court, according to the um, the GAO. Um, we have uh, oversight, basic oversight, but of course we have the president refusing to turn over documents to Congress. We have a uh, Senate confirmation process for officials within the executive branch, um, but Mr. Giuliani, who's at the center of that whole scandal and conducting what most people would, would agree is some form of foreign policy on behalf of the United States, it wasn't not even appointed, let alone gone through the confirmation process that in theory is there uh, to as a check through the populace, through the Senate, um, on uh, presidential conduct. So, so it's really the accumulation of power in one man with this particular uh, administration that is problematic, uh, not the notion that there are clear lines between what presidents can and can't do and what judges can and can't do. And I want to just add one other thing that hasn't been um, reported. 
very widely is that at least in the Seventh Circuit, uh, just Judge Easterbrook issued an opinion a couple weeks ago relating to immigration policy, a decision that he issued that the Justice Department just treated as optional. It was very upsetting to this uh, well-respected Seventh Circuit uh, judge. So if we get in a world where uh, the president just decides that judicial decisions are optional on a basis that isn't uh, something more widespread uh, for the purposes of the general populace, good for the general populace, then we are moving away from um, a republic, from a, a we the pe- government by the we the people, and something that looks much closer to authoritarianism. And nothing is in set in stone to protect Americans from that. Other other democracies have failed in our own lifetime, and I think we have to be vigilant in that uh, re- regarding that. John, I'd like you to respond to Kim's points. First, she said the difference between uh, Presidents Trump and Lincoln and Jefferson is he's acting and. Uh, to protect himself, and they were acting because of general constitutional disagreements. Uh, She said that there are other oversight bodies like Congress, but they're not exercising their powers. And then she uh, provocatively said that government becomes authoritarian when it concentrates power and refuses to respect the independence of the judiciary. I guess my question to you is what could the president do that would, in your view, threaten uh, the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary. And I can't help reading because I was moved to find it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's charges about King George and the judiciary in the Declaration of Independence. He, uh, Jefferson said, he has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. And he has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. What what could this president do that would make judges dependent on his will alone? And, and what would actually cross the line? Uh, so let me uh, try to get to all the points you asked me to address. So uh, the first point about, well, what we've got here is a president who's pursuing his own self-interest versus the national interest. And so he's got to be stopped uh, from doing that. Of course, that's the question that was the central issue in the impeachment uh, debate. And I think one point that uh, I, ha- I I agree with was that a lot of presidents think that what they do uh, advances both. A lot of presidents, uh, obviously, if the nation does better, they do better politically. And so, of course, there are going to be cases, and I thought Ukraine was very close to that, where uh, a president was just trying just trying to benefit himself rather than the nation. Uh, but I'll give you examples of other cases where presidents have done something that seemed personally uh, motivated. Take Thomas Jefferson during the Aaron Burr conspiracy. Uh, Jefferson is closely directs the prosecutor there to bring charges against Burr for treason. Uh, This is a great historical example. John Marshall is the trial judge. You have uh, Jefferson refusing to obey subpoenas from Marshall, refusing to provide witnesses to Marshall. But at the same time, Jefferson wants Burr convicted because Burr, who had been his vice president, is a political threat. And also Burr is threatening to spill secrets about the Jefferson administration. Uh, Burr is eventually acquitted by uh, John Marshall. But that you could make the same charge there that you make against Trump or Jefferson was misusing political power for his own benefit. I, I don't agree with this view, but there are conservatives who think President Obama did the same thing by refusing to enforce the DAPA and DACA laws because he wanted to allow more aliens into the country to build a bigger political constituency for the Democratic Party. I don't personally agree with that, but a lot of Republicans do believe that. And so they said that's a case where Obama was 
refusing to carry out his constitutional duty of law enforcement for political gain. I think it's very difficult to untangle the two. And this goes to your second point then, what's the remedy? So the framers decided the remedy should be the three branches fighting against each other. If Congress wants to stop this, they could. They could defund. They could reduce the size of agencies and personnel. They could change the criminal laws. They could do all kinds of things. If they don't choose to do it, that is not a failure to me of the Constitution. That is because they choose politically not to use that authority. The House of Representatives is in the hands of the opposition party to the president. They could do a lot more things. Instead, what do they do? They launch impeachment proceedings, and then they invite the president to give the State of the Union address, and then they sign the new NAFTA agreement, and then they start negotiations on an infrastructure bill. This does not sound like a House of Representatives that's actually willing to use its constitutional authorities to stop a president that they truly believe is out of control and truly abusing his constitutional powers. Uh, if that's Even if those checks fail, the framers thought about this, they talk about it in the Federalist Papers and say the real answer then has to be elections. President Trump is on the ballot this November. If people don't like the way he's running the Justice Department, if they do think he's undermining other norms that are not in the Constitution that people value more highly, like a, a neutral, truly neutral, independent Justice Department, they can vote him out of office and they can vote someone else in like a Jimmy Carter. This is one of the issues that occurred in the 76 election. It could happen again. I really want to, this last point, which also I think is suggested by you, Jeff, is this idea that we're somehow falling into authoritarianism, that the president here, President Trump, is extending his powers over the other branches, a supine Congress, and now he's sort of browbeating judges. I just don't think that's happening. If you look at American history, there have been much worse controversies, much worse things presidents have done and Congresses have done to the courts. You, you know, we could talk about the way FDR threatened to pack the court, the way the Republicans during the Civil War manipulated the size of the Supreme Court. You could talk about Jeffersonians trying to impeach members of the Supreme Court because of disagreement with their decisions. Yes, we are living in a difficult time where there is a lot of friction between the branches. I don't think it is a serious crisis compared to what we've seen in American history. And this is what I want to get about this original letter. I think these claims of authoritarianism, calling the attorney generals to resign, I think the rhetoric has gotten far beyond where we are in terms of the facts of the case. We are going to have an election in November. It's on the ballot. People will be able to vote. That's not authoritarianism. If people don't like this way of running things, they get then vote Trump out of office, vote the Republicans out of the Senate. Kim, uh, John makes some strong historical points about, his, about attacks on the judiciary, uh, ranging from FDR's court packing to efforts to change the size of the court uh, in the Lincoln and, and Jefferson administrations. So how troubled are you by President Trump's attacks on judges, the, these recent uh, attacks of the president uh, calling for Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor to recuse themselves are his most direct attacks on the Supreme Court? Um, John suggests that these recent attacks are, are rhetoric and, and less significant than attempts to change the size of the court that we've seen in the past. Uh, what's your view? Well, I think, you know, we have evolved over the course of American history. Uh, you mentioned the 
sort of reforms post-Watergate, we can do better than we did in the time of Jefferson and even FDR. So it's hard to say, listen, you look back for purposes of looking forward. I'm not sure um, that that's necessarily a rationale for not being worried today. And part of that is because today, uh, one of the biggest massive changes that has happened since even the Clinton um, investigation and, and impeachment that I mentioned I worked on is, of course, the digital age. Uh, and social media and the decline of reputable news sources in terms of the public's uh, experience and understanding of them. And what we're seeing is a devaluing of the legitimacy of government itself. And the federal courts, I think, are now in the line of fire with respect to this particular president. I mean, we, you know, Americans file their taxes returns because that's just what we do as a matter of norms, not because any of us really expects that we are going to be audited. We stop at stop signs and red lights. Um, I mean, sometimes we, we, we slow down because there's a speed camera, but in general, our, our society is ordered by respect for what people call the rule of law and the sort of um, steady, slow attacks on the legitimacy of institutions is, uh, is I think, different, particularly given, as I suggest, in the in given um, where we are in the digital age, the law is just not keeping up with it. And the notion, I mean, I hope uh, that my colleague John is absolutely correct that, you know, November will be uh, just the, the sort of ultimate ability of we the people to make a determination on this massive range, I think, of issues that are really overwhelming and confusing for most people. But of course, the impeachment itself as well as the Mueller investigation, were about interference with that very electoral process. Um, and our national security establishment, as well as Mueller himself, has made clear uh, that, that, that that ongoing interference is, is, is a reality, is real. Um, and we can talk about problems with voting, um, the you know, obvious campaign finance issues and uh, voter suppression issues and other things that make it difficult for we the people to actually have have a voice in government, but but I think there is, uh, given where we are in in the 21st century, um, with the inability of people to really understand what is government's about and what the individual issues, which to separate facts from reality, the fact that that we have a president who's willing to make um, lie from the bully pulpit essentially and attack our established institutions, career public servants that are trying, and I think mostly successfully, uh, to make decisions using ethics and good judgment, facts and law is is corrosive. And potentially we could cross a, a boundary that from which we can't really return uh, to a functioning democracy that we were all born into. John, I want to ask you, do you think that there is a boundary that we could cross? You have written that although the president is in charge constitutionally, uh, neutrality in law enforcement is important if the government is to have the credibility and integrity to convince judges and juries who are the ones who ultimately render the verdict. And of course, there was no social media at the time of the founding. So although we did have attacks on individual justices by Theodore Roosevelt, for example, during the 1912 campaign, 
sustained attacks by name on judges on social media is new because social media is new. So is there a point at which you think that the president's attacks on the courts or attempts to criticize prosecutorial decisions for partisan reasons could cross a line? And and what would that line be? So I don't think uh, anything the president says crosses any line vis-a-vis judges. I think judges are fair game. I think judges have lifetime tenure under our constitution. Their pay cannot be cut. They can only be removed by impeachment, not by a president, but through the House and the Senate uh, to insulate them from politics. They're grown up men and women. They should be able to take criticism. You might remember uh, Trump, I think, criticized the courts while Justice Gorsuch's uh, confirmation was going on. And Justice Gorsuch actually made some comments about how the president shouldn't criticize criticize the judiciary. And of course, Chief Justice John Roberts issued a a statement saying there are no Obama judges or Bush judges, they're just judges. They're free to say that too, but I don't see why presidents should be restricted in the way they criticize the judiciary vis-a-vis anything else they want to talk about. And maybe that's the real problem is Trump criticizes and talks about everything, not just the actions of government, but celebrity marriages and all kinds of going-ons. I actually think criticism of the judiciary is a good and healthy thing because we should be uh, critical of the judiciary. We should read their decisions with a skeptical eye. And I don't think we should be living in a world where the judiciary has supremacy in terms of interpreting the Constitution. Uh, On your question of prosecutors, it's a strange – I also don't see a problem with the president criticizing prosecutors uh, because in our system of having – I would again, I prefer uh, more arm's length – distance between the Justice Department and the White House. Trump never ordered anything to happen as far as we know. I think the prosecutor's letter was premature because it assumed that Trump had ordered Barr to reduce Stone's sentence and then Barr did it. And now the facts, it seems to be the case that Barr was doing it before Trump ever started tweeting. And so I don't see, again, a problem if the president wants to criticize. I think it's weird and bizarre politically for the president to criticize the Justice Department of his own administration where he appointed all the top officials. If he wants to do that, he should be able to. I think the line is more crossed if the president starts ordering uh, prosecutions dropped or prosecute really the the more worrisome thing is orders prosecutions brought that's really what uh, we worried about with Nixon and and actually let me say LBJ and JFK who were surveilling civil rights leaders for example and so on and the, what J. Edgar Hoover was doing that's really more of the concern is when the president actually issues orders to use that machinery of government to target and go after innocent Americans that to me would cross a line and the solution there I think is more, that's really, that would be what impeachment is really for. That's what elections are for. Um, I don't think it's uh, to, I think the mistake would be to introduce things like the independent counsel statute again to create a sort of independent prosecutor or to, there are these proposals that have been kicked around from time to time to try to make the Justice Department itself an independent agency. I think that would actually undermine the framers' design to have an energetic executive and would be a long-term mistake for the country. Uh, Kim, John just said that what would cross the line would be for the president to order prosecutions dropped or even more troubling, prosecutions brought on partisan political lines. 
Let's begin with the drop prosecution and particularly the pardon power. The president did recently pardon or commute the sentences of 11 people, including former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich uh, and uh, New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Couric. Kim, in your book, How to Read the Constitution and Why, you argue that the pardon power is not necessarily absolute, and you quote the Supreme Court's 1974 decision in Schick versus Reed to argue there may be some limitations on the president's pardon power, specifically when a pardon offends another part of the Constitution, then the president is not allowed to implement the pardon. Do you believe that any of the pardons the president has issued so far implicate other parts of the Constitution, and what kind of pardon might implicate another part of the Constitution and raise constitutional questions? No, I, I think to the extent to which there are problems with these pardons, it has to do with um, with some exceptions. I mean, um, that they were based on connections. Of course, um, the pardon, most pardons are funneled to the president through the Department of Justice's Office of the Pardon Attorney that applies, you know, a series of criteria to make determinations over hundreds or thousands of potential individuals as to whether, you know, categories or in, certain individuals warrant pardons or commutations, which is less than a pardon. Um, presidents historically have made many pardons and many, and some of them have been controversial. But the pardon power is there uh, to essentially, as a check on an overbearing judiciary to basically show clemency and fairness um, to people that are unjustly imprisoned. And I think there's an appearance here that that this this was, uh, you know, President Trump in the midst of his office using the pardon power. Um, this is a, the argument, I think, to uh, to foster curry favor politically that, you know, he will hand out pardons to people that are um, financially and politically powerful or connected to people who are financially and politically powerful. Um, and of course, in December, he pardoned war criminals. And there are a lot of military, uh, career military, very upset with that, um, to pardon people in the military who violated certain norms and laws. Uh, it sends a, a message internationally uh, that this president doesn't respect those kinds of boundaries. Um, as far as Schick versus Reed, I raise that because there's an ex expe there's a I think um, uh, a bit of a myth that Americans believe that the pardon power is absolute, and it's my my view that there isn't any completely absolute power uh, for the president. The, for example, if the president were to you know only pardon people of Caucasian descent, you could make an argument that that would violate. Um, equal protection or other parts of of the Constitution that that are there to ensure um, fair treatment, um, notwithstanding immutable characteristics of birth. But but with all of these things, and I think this is very important for listeners who aren't lawyers to understand, uh, the the Constitution is only so good as it's enforced, and of course a lot of it is quite vague. But but if the president were to, for example, um, you know, issue pardons on a basis that was uh, are unconstitutional, or if the if the president were to direct Bill Barr to prosecute his political rivals, um, Hillary Clinton, for example, in a second term, the question really would be, what are the consequences? Uh, if there aren't consequences, then the what's in the Constitution as far as what the president can and can't do becomes irrelevant. The answer is yes, he can do it. Um, because it's human nature to do what you can unless there is pushback or consequences. And I think it's 
And this is a problem across political parties. I mean, I agree the Democrats and Republicans in the Congress have not been been vigilant about protecting the prerogative of uh, the legislative branch. And the problem is that the losers are the American people, um, not necessarily individual politicians. And I'm not so sure if he were, if President Trump gets a second term, that if some of these horribles were to occur, that they would go, they would be checked. Uh, I think the concern is they'd be unchecked. And then we would be in in a world um, that's very different uh, in terms of our democratic structure or our our governmental structure. And the time to worry about these things, the time to debate these things is now, not then, um, because the election is in November 2020. So it is important, I think, to anticipate um, where this power, if unchecked, could go and make a determination on that basis whether it's time to put a check on the office not necessarily this this man um, per se. Uh, John, Roger Stone was convicted of undermining the Mueller investigation to protect Trump. If President Trump were to pardon Stone, would that raise constitutional difficulties or questions of norms in your view or not? And then take up some of the horribles that Kim mentioned in a second term or sooner, if the president were to order the prosecution of his political rivals, uh, would that raise constitutional or other legal difficulties or not? I don't think the pardons uh, that you're talking about would raise constitutional issues. Again, I think a lot of uh, the criticisms of President Trump have more to do with pol- political disagreements and require political responses, not legal and constitutional ones. So the pardon power, there's, it, it gives the president unfettered – the constitution gives the president unfettered power to pardon. Uh, it has only two exceptions in it uh, for state crimes and for impeachments. So you would think if the founders listed two clear exceptions – and no other exceptions. That means the pardon power is rarely unfettered. And this is the view the Supreme Court has held of the pardon power for, I think, well over 100 years. Um, and let me say the founders are not stupid. They weren't uh, utopians. Uh, they actually thought about this. Right? They, when they talked about the pardon power in the Federalist Papers, they mentioned the two main ideas, behind, two purposes were to show mercy uh, if something seemed unjust But then the second one was to help the federal government break up conspiracies and rebellions quickly, that you could give out pardons and that would help stop opposition to the government. And the anti-federalists attacked the pardon power on very similar grounds to the ones that people are attacking the possibility of pardoning Stone. They said, what if the president himself is part of the conspiracy to overthrow the government? What if the president is conspiring with foreign powers to overthrow the government? And then suppose he sits there and issues pardons to all his co-conspirators. This is actually specifically discussed in the Federalist Papers. And Alexander Hamilton says, look, the benefits of the pardon power just outweigh the potential abuses. And he says this could be an abuse, but the benefits of having a power of mercy, the benefits of being able to protect the government from overthrow are more important. And so we wouldn't limit the pardon power uh, in that way. Again, the solution to abuse of the pardon power would come from other avenues, such as impeachment. I think you could impeach a president for misusing a pardon power. And I think you could, of course, vote the president out of office in November for abusing uh, the pardon. You could say that's what happened with Jerry Ford pardoning Richard Nixon. Ford never had a chance, people say, politically of reelection once he issued a pardon for Nixon for his crimes during Watergate. 
I think that's the real uh, answer. Uh, and I think we again, I think we're looking for uh, turning to the Constitution to find solutions when really the solution uh, is a political one. In terms of what's going to happen in Trump's second term, I actually think the impeachment power becomes more important in the second term because, uh, and this of course is something the founders worried about too, because the th- the uh, the threat of not being reelected is no longer there for a second term president, and the fa- of course the founders didn't include two term limits in the beginning. So there, again, I think impeachment and elections, congressional elections, congressional oversight, the usual give and take of politics are even more important to constrain a president. Uh, So, yeah, maybe Trump wins a second term. He starts pardoning everybody. Suppose he starts initiating prosecutions of Hillary Clinton and his other supposed enemies. The other branches will have to respond. Courts could refuse to convict Judges could, you know, could dismiss these indictments. Juries could refuse to convict. Congress can refuse to fund. And I think that's, I think that's what the Constitution intends: is that the other branches respond using their own powers. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this great discussion. Kim, can you tell our great We the People listeners in what ways you believe that President Trump is threatening norms of an independent? Justice Department and judiciary and the rule of law. Well, we're also hearing reports that the president has hired people to purge the executive branch of people that have um, opinions that aren't consistent with the president or have somehow crossed the president. In our own day-to-day lives, when you make hard decisions, um, sometimes you need to hear dissent. And what I think the concern here is that the president has pushed boundaries across the board that uh, other presidents haven't to this level. And we have a complicit Congress, at least Republicans in Congress in particular, who worry about their ability to stay in office by virtue of a bully pulpit that has the benefit of social media now. Um, And so the question, I think, Structurally, not just with respect to this particular man, but the question structurally is what are the meaningful checks, meaningful checks on the office of the presidency going forward because that person in that office holds such a tremendous amount of power. As I tell my students, I mean, government can put people in jail. That's the difference between a civil case and a criminal case. And when you think about someone utilizing the power of the FBI, uh, and and the prosecutorial uh, talent and expertise um, and force of the Justice Department to punish uh, political dissidents, um, then we start seeing people change behavior by virtue of fear of retribution from the government. When you start changing your behavior, you start changing your speech, then you start, I think, altering your very humanity um, and your individuality. And that, of course, is um, what Ameri- a principle that American democracy is founded on. And as I said, I don't think we've, we're cro- we've crossed that Rubicon right now, but I think we're at a red light moment for democracy and people don't want to hear that. They, they want to just think everything is going to settle down. And I don't think without vigilance um, and care and fighting for uh, government by the we the people, we can sit back and assume that it's going to be there for our children and grandchildren. And John, the last word is to you. Can you tell our great We the People listeners why you think that claims that President Trump is threatening norms of an independent 
Justice Department and judiciary and the rule of law are overstated. Well, I think that uh, President Trump is returning to a more Spartan view of the organization of the presidency in our constitutional system. Uh, that's more true, I think, to the basic ideas hardwired into the Constitution in Article 2, uh, again, which gives a president the sole constitutional responsibility to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Uh, the Constitution permits a wide variety of different political regimes and arrangements. Yes, it is a democratic system, although it is in many ways anti-democratic if you look at the Senate and the Supreme Court and the ways that the Constitution actually tries to limit and channel pure democracy. Uh, the point is that from time to time, and this has happened several times in our history, we come to a point where our government has become overgrown, where it has lost touch with the people and different presidents come in and sort of overturn that system with great popular support. And you can look at presidents like, uh, again, Jefferson, Lincoln, FDR, Reagan. These are ones historians agree have done that, where they have come in at the head of a large movement and swept aside uh, sort of existing, sort of growingly obsolete, cumbersome government. And I think the question is whether we're living through that moment now or whether we're really living more through a Nixonian Watergate moment. But I think the real answer has to be politics and elections. This is not an issue where I think what Trump is doing is outside constitutional rules. It's just outside the political norms of how bureaucracy and the government have operated in the past. And we are entitled to change that through the people we elect or if we think we've gone too far, we can stop it, but we should have more faith. I think that our democracy uh, nurtured and built under a constitution that has lasted for so long is up to this test, just as it has been up to, the, I think, the greater challenges of the Civil War, of the Great Depression, of the Civil Rights Movement. I think actually the time we're living in is nowhere near as difficult as those times. And I, I'm confident that our constitutional system and a political system will, will prevail through it. Thank you so much, Kimberly Whaley and John Yu, for a thoughtful, nuanced, and historically informed discussion of President Trump and the future of the rule of law. Kim, John, thank you so much for joining. Great to be with you. Thanks. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Michael Marcus and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. In the spirit of tell a friend, why, why not pick out someone you know would like the show? You, you're, you're all listeners and you have a good sense of it. And tell them to give it a listen. It'd be wonderful to spread the light as widely as possible. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.